You make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. One minute you're up half a million in soybeans and the next boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? The revolution starts now. Starts now. We have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Turn those machines back on! You are about to enter the Peter Schiff Show. Show me the money! If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. The Peter Schiff Show is on. Call in now. 855-4-SHIFT. That's 855-472-4433. I don't know when they decided that they wanted to make a virtue out of selfishness. Your money. Your stories. Your freedom. The Peter Schiff Show. Good morning, good morning, good morning, everybody. How are you doing, my good friends, Shiftomaniacs? It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio, standing in for the Peter Schiff radio show. And today, hold on to your dials. We've got a gripping show about history. No, 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 don't leave. Don't leave yet. I know, I know. History is often portrayed and by many is experienced as incredibly dull memorization of incredibly dull facts. When was the War of 1812? But I'm telling you, history is essential for solving the problems that we are facing as a society, as a civilization. As you may know, I'm calling in from Canada. So when I say I, I mean we, the heirs of the Enlightenment and of Greek philosophy and of Roman law and common law, which we are trying to save from the increasing predations of an ever-expanding state. So we're going to talk this morning about two very, very important and instructive areas of history that point the way out of the current mess that we are all facing. Massive deficits, ever-increasing regulation and control, uh, debt, unfunded liabilities. It's all, as the song says, been done before. And yes, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> not this time, maybe later. So we're going to talk about um, the, the parallels between ancient Rome. Remember that republic that also had a very large welfare state and massive debt and the debasement of currency and inflation and an empire. Uh, so we're going to talk about the uh, Roman Empire with the great Lawrence Reed, who is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, or FEE, which is a great free market think tank, quite different from the Keynesian Socialist Welfare uh, Organization, which I think is pronounced free, <laughs> for now, anyway. So I'm going to start off by talking about a meeting, a meeting that occurred in a bar, a bar called the Pelican Inn. And uh, the reason that it's important that it took place in a bar is you have to be drunk to think that socialism makes any kind of sense. So on the 6th of May, 1795, a bunch of judges and uh, other <laughs> folk got together and they were facing a big problem. The poor were not doing well. The poor were doing catastrophically badly uh, in the late 18th century. Now, you know, we all know this sort of Dickensian thing of, oh, the free market, the exploited, the exploitive capitalists uh, were regularly grinding children into caviar and, and, and overworking everyone and so on. But it's always important to remember that the Industrial Revolution, which came after the Agricultural Revolution, you need an agricultural revolution first, because in order to have industrialization, you need excess food and cities and all that kind of, you need laborers who aren't involved in farming. So there was a uh, a um, agricultural revolution that came first that expanded the food supply, but it came at the cost of the poor, right? So the traditional medieval model was you were a serf who was sort of bought and sold with the land and so on. But what happened was when agriculture began to improve for a variety of reasons, I won't bore you with now, you got more pop higher population, more people survived, infant mortality went down and so on. 
And what happened then was the land that people had got continually subdivided and subdivided. You know, if you have seven kids and seven acres, then each kid gets an acre, and then you keep subdividing it to the point where it became really problematic. So what happened was there was this thing called the enclosure movement where the aristocracy, the landowners and the landlords and so on, they, they sort of bought out the peasants and enclosed the land and, and they enclosed the common land. Right? It used to be all of this stuff where you could let your cows and sheep graze and they all enclosed this. They, they used to have the right of uh, scouring the, the harvest for little bits of food and they, they got rid of that because it all became part of the marketplace. So they enclosed the land. This kicked a whole bunch of people off the land. And uh, they, this was sort of the, the base of industrial worker capacity that was taken over by the Industrial Revolution. But they weren't doing well. Uh, 1795, um, there had been a couple of years of bad harvests. Really, really not good when you're like three calories away from starvation at any given moment. And, of course, England had gotten involved in the wars of Europe uh, starting in 1793, which meant that there was no trade, uh, no trade with, with Europe. You couldn't import food. Now, of course... The, the movement of food is really, really important because, uh, you know, if you're in a farm, a local area, maybe your farm's doing well, but uh, a farm 20 miles away might be doing really badly for whatever reason. So the free flow of food is really important in keeping people alive. In Europe, remember, 5 to 10% of the population sometimes would starve to death in any given year. It was, it was wretched. And so the poor weren't doing well. And so what did these judges, these fine, upstanding citizens decide to do? Well, what they decided to do was to create a welfare state. And then well, there was some poor relief before, but basically what they said was, okay, bread is getting really expensive because of these wars, bad harvests, and so on. So what we're going to do is we're going to top up. We're going we're to impose a tax. I mean, we're going to increase a tax that was already on the landowners. And we're going to take that tax. We're going to give it to the poor based on two things, the size of their family and the price of bread. And this was uh, put into place uh, only in the South not so much in the north. And this has long-term effects. Remember, the north in England remained the, the sort of industrial factory area and the south was more financial, and this is sort of one of the reasons why. And so they put this uh, into, into place. It was called Spinimlum, based upon the, uh, the town that this was all set up in. And so they put this in place. So if you were poor and you had a big family, you got a lot of money. If you were a landowner, even a small landowner, if you just owned an acre or two, you got nothing. You were excluded from that. So you had to be landless. You had to have a big family, and the price of bread had to be high, and that's what, you, what happened. So immediately, of course, this ran into problems because when you subsidize workers, what happens is the employers cut their wages, right? Or, or they certainly don't let them increase their wages because what happens is they, the, the poor don't have the same drive to increase their wages. They won't keep looking for better opportunities. They won't demand more money because they're already subsidized. So what happened basically was that the, um, the, the, the wages stagnated and even in some areas declined in the south. Now, in the north, they kept rising where, where this welfare state was not put into place. It's kind of a good lab because it's the same country, but it's two different approaches. One was let the poor you know, be more in the free market. The other was let the poor be um, trapped into a welfare state. And so that was not great. Now, another thing that happened was if you had property, you couldn't get this welfare. And so what happened was people who were, just had a small amount of land, they couldn't compete with these subsidized workers, with the workers who got the welfare. So they had to sell their land and join the workforce. And that was a huge problem because more workers means lower wages again. And the way that the taxes work, and again, this is all so familiar to us now, is that if you a large 
landholder with lots of employees, uh, lots of workers, then you paid much less per capita than people who were just farming with their friends and family. And so again, you had people shutting down their farms and joining the large, large agricultural concerns. During this time, the poor, you know, bred fiercely. There was massive increases uh, in crime from 1810 onwards. In particular, the crime of poaching was just nutty. And there were real strict restrictions on movement. You lived in a parish, like a county, right? And you couldn't go to another county because nobody in that other county wanted you if you were poor because they were afraid that you were going to start taking welfare and raise their tax rates. So really draconian controls over people's movement began to be put into place. So all of these things have happened before. We're going to talk about this a little bit more after the break. What happened and how we can solve it. History is the map of the future if we look at it right. This is Stefan Molyneux for Peter Schiff. I will be right back. Nine out of ten historians agree. If Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine were alive today, both would be Schiff Radio Premium members. Somewhere up there, Thomas Jefferson is looking down with great pride. Schiff Radio continues right now. Hello, hello, and we're back, ladies and gentlemen. This is your exciting history lesson of the future. This is Ken Molyneux for the Peter Schiff Radio Show. Please remember, I'm looking forward to your calls. Um, we're going to take them soon. You can call 855-4SHIFT. That's 855-472-4433. Uh, it's funny, you know, I, I was just thinking, I came across this Spinemland issue, right? This is the historical welfare state. Really the first welfare state that was put into place since the fall of the Roman Empire, which we'll be talking about in a few minutes. And this was when I was studying history. I did a master's in history, focusing really on the history of philosophy um, when I was in my 20s at uh, the University of Toronto. And I remember thinking at the time, this is really important. I, nobody taught it to me. I never came across it in any textbooks. I just came across it while I was doing research for other things. I remember thinking, boy, you know, if I have to host a radio show in about 20 years, this stuff is going to be grippingly essential. So Spinemland was a welfare state that was put into place just in the south of England. It never went national. Uh, people tried to make it go national, but never did, which created a lot of the same problems we're seeing today, and not, not just on the side of the poor, but on the side of the state. So what happened, it really reads like, the description of the John Galt factory disaster in uh, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, who of course could describe this stuff very well because she lived through all of this, right? Her father's business was taken from her by the communists. And what happened in particular was the poor became a problem. They became something that people didn't want to have around. See, the poor normally in a free market system, if, poor, if the poor people come in, that's usually great for the hirers because, you know, it drives down wages and eventually they compete their way back up. But if you're an employer, you love lots of poor people coming in. But when you, when you have a welfare, it becomes a problem because now they can prey upon your wallet involuntarily through the forced redistribution of wealth that the welfare state represents. So what happens with the welfare state is you get very tight controls over the movements of people, very tight controls over the movements of people. I mean, it's still hard to believe. But as of about 100 years ago, there was no such thing as a passport or a green card. You just go and work places. And the control over people's movements that arises from the welfare state is really important and has incredible historical precedence. So people would sometimes leave a particular parish in the 18th century or 19th century to go and find work somewhere else because there's just no work. And do you know what would happen? It's truly quite amazing. Their houses would be demolished. The, the landowners would demolish their houses and would, because they were terrified of them coming back. 
if they get six kids or whatever, they go off someplace. They don't want them to come back because those six kids are no longer labor opportunities, but tax liabilities. And think of all the border controls that are very important to the Republicans and to some degree the Democrats and certainly to the people in Arizona along the south of the U.S. are really terrified of migrant workers, of undocumented workers and so on. And it's not because they drive down wages because it's not like a lot of Americans want jobs picking fruit, but they're concerned about the preying upon the public purse. And all of this stuff has happened before. This terrible game of cat and mouse, which is in the undocumented workers situation in the U.S., uh, you know, between a third to a half of economic activity in the world is in the gray and black markets. All of this is occurring as well. Poaching uh, in England this time became endemic because, because what happens is, is it's so terrible and it's so predictable. And anyone who tells you that they've got a great solution for poverty, you should ask them, what history have you studied to figure out what went wrong before? Because everything in human history, uh, everything in human society, every conceivable act of social engineering has been tried before and found terribly wanting. So people, you know, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society said, hey, you know, let's redistribute income. Has that ever been tried before? Have you studied it? And do you know what went wrong? And they say, who cares about that? We have good intentions. Ah, oh, good intentions. What is that road to hell paved with? Oh, I don't know. It'll come to me soon. Uh, good intentions are um, just horrible. Henry David Thoreau said, if ever a man comes to my house to make me a better person, I run screaming out the back door. <laughs> Something like that. I mean, there's nothing so dangerous as a person with good intentions and the power of law. And good intentions don't matter at all. They don't matter at all. What matters is knowledge. Good intentions are no cover for knowledge. And let's see, I see some guy. He's a uh, gripping his side and bent over doubled in pain, and I grab a butter knife and attempt to give him an appendectomy right there in the subway. And he dies. And I say, no, 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 you see, I thought he was having an appendicitis attack, so I wanted to save him. My goal was to help him. I had good intentions. Well, the judge and the jury and the prosecution would say, to hell with your good intentions, sir. Did you know how to perform an appendectomy? Did you even know how to diagnose an appendectomy? I would say, well, no, but I did watch a couple of episodes of House MD, so I feel I'm pretty much up on it. Well, into the clink I would go, my good intentions nonwithstanding. In fact, it would be my good intentions that would cause the disaster. So people who have good intentions but lack knowledge are about the most dangerous people in the world. Now, let's listen to the great historian, Carl Pollyanni, who wrote about this in 1957. He's a great writer. If you ever get to read Pollyanni, uh, he's just fantastic. He wrote about this uh, in 1957. He wrote, The Spenumland Law, which had sheltered rural England and thereby the laboring population in general from the full force of the market mechanism, was eating into the marrow of society. By the time of its repeal, huge masses of the laboring population resembled more the specters that might haunt a nightmare than human beings. But if the workers were physically dehumanized, the ruling classes were morally degraded. The traditional unity of a Christian society was giving place to a denial of responsibility on the part of the well-to-do for the conditions of their fellows. The two nations were taking shape. To the bewilderment of thinking minds, unheard of wealth turned out to be inseparable from unheard of poverty. Does that sound familiar? The widening gap between the rich and the poor, the 99% and the 1%? To continue, scholars proclaimed in unison that a science had been discovered which put the laws governing man's world beyond any doubt. It was at the behest of these laws that compassion was removed from the hearts and a stoic determination to renounce human solidarity in the name of the greatest happiness for the greatest number gained the dignity of a secular religion. Ah, 
Don't you just love that language? I mean, I would love it if people were well-educated enough in government schools to really appreciate that kind of language. But this is all what we have seen. When you pay people through force, charity is a different matter. Charity can be very helpful. But when you just give people money through the power of the state, it corrupts the poor and it corrupts the ruling class. So in, in the Spina Run thing, of course, the way that people would take in money through taxation and the way that they would pay it out all became political favoritism and vote buying, exactly as it is now. Once you start to pay the poor, then you buy the votes of the poor and you corrupt and degrade. See, this went on for about 40 years. Uh, it sort of was, it was repealed about 40 years after its inception. And this is pretty much where we are now. 40 years or so, a little bit more than 40 years since the beginning of the welfare state, the real welfare state in America. In England, uh, the, the Spinemlin system was pretty much done until 1971 when the welfare state started back up in the same way, right, to basically buy votes. So what the ruling class was doing was they were buying the poor, buying their loyalty, buying their votes, and they were also heading off the social unrest that comes from people being hungry, right? What happened with the Arab Spring? Was there a philosophical revolution? No, people were just starving to death, right? Um, price of wheat went up 40%, which when half of Egypt is living on two bucks a day, uh, is enough to put people into the streets with rocks and Molotov cocktails. So this is what happens, not because they care about the poor. If people really cared about the poor, they'd change course when the poor did worse. Because what happens is you trap the poor into the system, and then, because the system becomes abominably expensive and corrupt, 70 to 80% of the money paid into the welfare state goes to bureaucrats, not to the poor. So the costs of the welfare state continue to go up. You have to have draconian controls, and then you have to start reducing benefits. You get people addicted to the drug of dependence, and then you reduce their benefits slowly. Not fast enough that they can actually take drastic action and change their lives. Just slow enough that they're dragged down into the depths of what used to be called pauperism, which we now just call perpetual poverty. And this hardening of the underclass is the result of state power. It has happened before. It is happening now. Until we learn the lessons of history, it is, is going to continue to happen again. We must, must, must look back into history. Spenumland is a great place to look. Uh, I'll spell it just because <laughs> it's old British. S-P-E-E-N-H-A-M-L-A-N-D. Sounds like some horrible thing they would serve you in a cafeteria, uh, a mystery meat. But no, it's a fascinating system of uh, welfare that was put into place and then taken out of place the moment it began to threaten the ruling class. Right? So once the poor become corrupted enough and, the, and the, the system becomes corrupted enough and nobody wants to do business with you anymore and manufacturing flees as it did from the south to the north, who wants to send up, set up a manufacturing facility in this kind of environment? Then they will turn on the poor and cut off their supply because it threatens their interests. And that's what's going to happen here, I'm sure, as well, too. So stay tuned. We are going to talk to the great... Lawrence Reed, uh, I've had him actually on my show before. He is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, author of Striking the Root, Essays on Liberty. His um, journalism in uh, e political and economic affairs have taken him to 78 countries. And uh, he's going to come back and talk about the parallels. Oh, I just think this stuff is so great. I hope that you guys like it. If you don't, uh, let me know and uh, I will go back to other things. But he's going to talk about the parallels between the First Republic and what may be the last, Rome and America. We'll be right back after the break. You're breaking up. Hi, everybody. It's Stan Malkin, Peter Radio, standing in for Peter Schiff on the fine 4th of June 
2012. We're just waiting to get Lawrence Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education patched in. So there are some things that are very obvious in the parallels between ancient Rome and modern America. And of course, the two that are most obvious are imperialism and the welfare state. And people know a lot about the imperialism of ancient Rome, but they're not quite so clear on the welfare state uh, aspect of it. And um, this is very, very important. Uh, This is one of the things that happened in the later Roman Empire, uh, which was, uh, let me sort of give you the brief um, story before we get uh, Lawrence online. The brief story is that Rome began as, and we have to exclude slavery, and, and we have to exclude the fact that there were no rights for women and children because we look, we judge a, a historical period by what came before, not by all the standards we have afterwards. Otherwise, uh, every doctor uh, was terrible before antibiotics were invented because they didn't prescribe antibiotics, and that would be an unfair standard. And so out of the, the chaos of warring tribes in Italy came Rome, and Rome had a commitment to free trade, to free trade, unfathomable, virtually unprecedented. Even Greece, uh, which had a commitment to um, yeah, philosophy and, and, and war and so on, did not have the same level of commitment to free trade. And this was a very, very powerful aspect of Rome. They uh, waged war uh, and expanded their territory, and in the expansion of that territory, they allowed for free trade. Really, for the first time in human history, this free trade area had opened up. And that really was quite astounding because it meant that people could generate the kind of wealth that free trade allows. That's so essential and important. And if you want to look for the foundation of the Roman Empire, if you want to look for the foundation of, I would argue, any world historical empire, any great power, if you look at the basis of it, it is liberty. This is the great danger of liberty, which is that liberty particularly economic liberty, creates opportunity, creates the division of labor, creates marginal utility, creates all of these wonderful things that allow for wealth to increase. And what happens then is the government uses that increase in wealth in in two ways. One, it uses it to increase its own tax revenues because once people are making more money, you can tax them more and you won't get a revolution. And two, it uses next year and the year after and the year after that's tax revenue as collateral to borrow. And I think that's really, really important. And so from that aspect, when you have a free market at the beginning, you have a problem because the free market generates wealth, the wealth feeds the power and the size of the state, and the state then goes on on world-conquering exercises of military might that collapse and decay the wellspring, the fountainhead, dare I say, of wealth generation. Wealth breeds money, money breeds the state, the state kills the freedom, the state kills the free market. And this is all very, very important to understand. So (laughs) there are um, uh, just astounding things that happened in in late Rome. So uh, this guy Clodius uh, was elected um, uh, in the later stages of the Roman Empire. And what did he offer? Free wheat for the masses, free stuff for the masses. And, uh, you know, this is a a, a demagogue in the style of Barack Obama who offers you a whole bunch of stuff and will only ask for vague responsibilities in return that are never quite defined and certainly never extracted. And this was very successful. He got into power. He gave these people all this free wheat. When Julius Caesar came to power, okay, Rome had one million people in it. Rome had one million people in it. When Julius Caesar came to power, 
320,000 of them were on government grain relief. Government grain relief. And that was <laughs> really bad. He managed to drag it down to about 200,000. But, you know, a couple of decades later, it was back even higher than it was before. Emperor Nero once declared, let us tax and tax again. Let us see to it that no one owns anything. And, um, you know, this is the guy who fiddled while Rome burns. The, the actual reality, of course, he didn't fiddle while Rome burns because the fiddle wasn't invented for about a thousand years after uh, he was an emperor. But uh, uh, what happened was Rome, you know, Rome is remembered for its empire and its public works. In other words, it's remembered for its socialism, not its capitalism. It's, it's, um, it's remembered for the effects of force, not the effects of freedom. Uh, and that's always quite tragic. Because Nero actually burned down large sections of Rome because he wanted to have his own little Legoland and uh, little construction projects that were going on. And um, what else did Rome do? Ah, yes, well, Rome, of course, got involved in farm policy. Oh, everything old is new again. History is a grim cycle until we learn better and see the true lessons of history. So you've probably heard that over in the uh, European Economic Union, uh, which is complete, <laughs> it's the complete opposite of the truth. There really is no such thing as Europe. It's just a bunch of land and people. Uh, they are actually against any kind of economic sense. And I think the word union cannot exactly be applied to the internecine currency warfare that are currently going on, currently going on at the moment. But in the uh, EEC, they have these uh, lakes of wine and mountains of butter and slaughter of the animals. And they just get, they just destroy a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, the same thing happened uh, in, in Rome. Uh, another emperor ordered the destruction of half the vineyards because he wanted to raise the price of wine. But enough of my babbling. Lawrence, do we have you on the line, my friend? Yes. Hi, Stefan. How are you? Very well. How are you doing, man? Okay, thanks. Sorry for the uh, bad connection there a moment ago. I don't know why it happened. Oh, no sweat. No sweat at all. Okay, so uh, we were just talking, uh, well, I was rambling uh, about uh, the similarities, of course, that people know, imperialism and, uh, and welfare. What are the other similarities that you would point to that we could learn from when looking at our current system? Uh, between, I'm sorry, I didn't get the first part. Sorry, between the U.S. and Rome. Oh, U.S. and Rome. Uh, well, both civilizations were founded in similar fashion as a revolt against tyranny. And uh, when Rome broke free of the Etruscan rule, uh, rule of the Etruscans in the uh, 6th century B.C., they were so alarmed and concerned about the concentration of power that they created a republic and dispersed power, created a legislative assembly. Uh, There's that, that a strong similarity to the birth of America. And for the first 500 years, roughly, uh, the Roman Republic uh, thrived in a, an atmosphere of relative peace and freedom and uh, free enterprise, as did the U.S. for much of our early history. But uh, late in the Republic period, people began to discover that they could vote themselves for a living instead of just working for one. And that gave rise to the birth of the Roman welfare state. Uh, government continued to grow. People depended upon it uh, for, for virtually every aspect of their lives, ultimately. And that led to the concentration of great amounts of power, uh, a massive amount of government spending, deficit spending, uh, multiplication of the money uh, uh, supply in order to pay for a lot of these things. And, of course, uh, increasingly, um, we found that in ancient Rome, as people became dependent upon the central government, they became less 
independent personally. Uh, he who pays the piper calls the tune. So ultimately they became serfs or slaves of the state, which became all-powerful. And in the end, they lost not only uh, their liberties, but uh, um, uh, their treasury and their very existence as, a, as an independent and great empire. Yeah, one of the things people don't know, I think, is that from its height of about a million people, uh, after the fall of Rome, there were only about 17,000 people living in the ruins of, of Rome uh, throughout the Dark Ages, which was really quite tragic. Now, of course, one of the things that happened in Rome was catastrophic inflation. Right? They debased the currency. I think you pointed out in an essay that the denarius went from 94% silver to 0.02% silver. <laughs> yes. So there was that aspect, and of course there was the influx of treasure from the conquest, which much like Spain in the 17th century caused massive inflation. But um, were there other causes uh, of inflation other than uh, just the debasement and the military conquest? What was driving the inflation? Well, it was not just the military conquests and the need to extend uh, control over this vast and growing territory for much of Roman history, but you had a budding welfare state at home, uh, which started first... Uh, with the need of the uh, leaders of Rome to pay off uh, uh, soldiers and the veterans. But the problem with every welfare state is once you begin to concede that this or that group uh, can, by some right, uh, live at the expense of the rest of society, uh, the problem is where do you draw the line? I mean, lots of other people come forward and say, uh, hey, I'm, a pre I'm pretty important too, why shouldn't I get some of this? And before long, uh, virtually every group of people in Rome, from veterans to poor people to middle class to rich businesses, uh, were looking to government as a way to get something they couldn't get voluntarily and freely in the marketplace. So government became a massive redistributive apparatus, and although they taxed ever harder to pay for it all, uh, increasingly that wasn't enough. And so they began multiplying uh, the money supply by reducing the precious metal content in the coins, that led to soaring prices and eventually uh, wage and price controls. Which were catastrophic, right? I mean, people, there was, there was literally blood in the streets when wage and price controls were imposed because people were no longer bringing food into the cities or bringing their goods to market That's because right. they couldn't even cover the cost of production. That's right. It was in the year 301 AD that the Emperor Diocletian issued a famous edict, Edict of 301, which imposed comprehensive wage and price controls under penalty of death. And uh, the result was the same uh, as it's been with every experiment with wage and price controls, going back at least as far as Hammurabi in Babylon in 1750 B.C. Uh, when you fix a price by decree that's below what it otherwise would be in an open marketplace, then you have less incentive for producers to produce and bring to market and more incentive for consumers to demand Sorry. more. So you had shortages, you had... Uh, a great deal of bloodshed in an effort to enforce these laws, and the Roman economy just fell, fell apart uh, big time and never recovered. Right, and uh, now it's doing the same thing again and probably for the same reasons. Uh, now, Lawrence, I don't. can you stay past the break? I think yeah. you mentioned yep. that you had yep. another appointment to get to. Fantastic. If you can hang on, we'll, we'll come back right after the break, and we want to discuss uh, the parallels that can change about how we're dealing with the existing system. This is Stefan Molyneux for the Peter Schiff Radio Show. We will be right back. You're now enrolling in the Peter Schiff School of Advanced Economics. Twice the education of a Harvard MBA. For one 168,000th the cost. Nope. <laughs> Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux. 
standing in, sitting in, lying in for Peter Schiff. Uh, we have on the line Lawrence Reed, who is, I think we're going to refer to him as the high emperor of the Foundation for Economic uh, Education. Uh, Lawrence, are you still there? Do we have the Lawrence on the line? Well, let's just double check. We'll wait for to see if he's got him on the line. And uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about what happened towards the end. Now, the fate of Rome is not going to be the fate of the West. You know, radical depopulation of the cities, uh, invasion by hordes of uh, Germans and uh, other forms of uh, uh, barbarians is not, is not going to be the case for North America for a, a variety of reasons. But what happened towards the end of the Rome, uh, end of the Roman Empire was, I think, very, very interesting. You know, we all know the barbarians invaded Rome and, and took it over, but not many people know why. <laughs> why? I mean, if you're comfortable in Germany, why would you want to come <laughs> to Rome? Well, what happened in the late Roman Empire, of course, was the empire got hyperextended. Massive problems. The empire was huge. Uh, in fact, um, I don't know exactly how many military bases they had overseas, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was roughly about 700. Did we get Lawrence back? Yes, I'm here. Uh, oh, hi, Lawrence. Listen, um, I'll ramble on later. I just wanted to, um, to touch base with you about a question. Of course, we know that there were people who were clamoring for a bigger welfare state and a maintenance of the welfare state. What was the other side? Was there a Tea Party in ancient Rome that was clamoring for smaller government? <laughs> well, I suppose that uh, the best example of a Tea Party-type activist would have been Cicero. Uh, he was raising the alarm about the uh, collapsing republic in uh, the first century B.C. with the growth of welfareism all around him and uh, uh, increasingly uh, men of great arrogance and conceit uh, trying to seize power and concentrate it, he was out there uh, saying this is not what Rome is all about. We're going to lose our liberties if we uh, continue to follow this path. So he would have been, I guess, a, a Tea Party activist type. Uh, in later decades, uh, you found that uh, the opposition to the Roman welfare state centered around uh, Roman Christians who were persecuted for their faith and uh, who felt that uh, there was a higher authority than uh, the Roman emperor. Uh, but when they finally caved in and became part of the welfare state bandwagon under Constantine, then there really was very little opposition left, and the whole welfare state continued to grow uh, and uh, then collapse in uh, uh, barbarian invasions in 476 AD. Now, of course, one of the things that happened uh, towards the end of Rome was the Roman reliance on mercenaries, uh, that they... they of course, tried to conscript everyone they could, but they really could only conscript in cities. There wasn't much point trying to find people in the countryside, so a lot of people, younger people in particular, left the cities, which decimated the tax base. Again, it's really hard to tax people outside of cities because you know, the cost-benefit ratio is, is much different. And so this reliance on uh, mercenaries also seems to parallel, I think, a, a common late empire uh, situation. I wonder if you could uh, comment on that, uh, if you'd like. Yeah, I think that is a factor. Uh, they had a vast territory uh, to defend, but maybe the most important observation to make with regard to mercenaries is what was happening uh, among Romans themselves. Increasingly demoralized, uh, they just didn't uh, have, have the spirit uh, to defend what was left at home. In fact, uh, at the very end, uh, many of them welcomed the uh, barbarian invasions because they felt that almost anything was better than the tyranny of their own tax collectors and their own regulators. So increasingly, the Roman people themselves just sort of gave up and said, you know, we're, we're, in effect, we're working our tails off for this rotten regime, and uh, 
uh, we're suffering as a, as a consequence of it. Who wants to fight for it? Yeah, and the uh, the conscription would often last 20 years. Yeah. I mean, they just drag you off to foreign countries to get stabbed in a situation where there's almost no health care, medical care of any kind that was useful. I mean, putting leeches on your open chest wound isn't going to do much to last you longer. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, there was this, this because the, 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 the containment of the state failed, there was this desperation. Now, if I remember rightly, and it's been a while since I took this course, was one of the things the barbarians were looking for, were they not mercenary armies just looking to get paid? Oh, yeah, uh, that was a factor. There were mercenaries uh, uh, who served in the Roman military uh, who came from the Huns and the Visigoths and the Goths of, uh, from uh, uh, the Germanic areas. And uh, to many of them, this was a path to wealth and to power, to join the Roman army. uh, meant that they would uh, live better than uh, as tribesmen uh, back in their territory, and uh, it could even conceivably be a path to power. Right. And so this characteristic of late empire, which we're seeing as well with the American empire, and to some degree the European economic uh, empire, which is, is a loose use of the phrase, but you see an undercutting of the domestic tax base at the same time as you have fixed, unalterable liabilities uh, on the part of the state. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Look at our tax base today. Uh, with regard to the income tax, about half of Americans pay none at all, and that's not an argument uh, in favor of raising taxes, but it is. Uh, it does note that you know, we, we tax because we spend, and if we spend too much, there's no uh, tax that can be fair uh, that can pay for it all. And that was the problem in ancient Rome. They just had massive demands to spend for the military, for the welfare state, and in the end, productive people just threw in the towel and the place collapsed. Right. So uh, just before we get to the next break, I'd like you to talk a little bit, if you can, I know prognostication is a dangerous game for anyone, but um, how long did it take for the Ark of Rome to fall from its height, and where would you put America in that continuum at the moment? Well, it's very tricky to, uh, uh, to, to make these time comparisons. Uh, things didn't move quite as fast in so many ways in ancient times. But uh, the Roman experience is basically a thousand years, with the first half of that uh, roughly 500 years being a period of a republic, and the second 500 years being a very different imperial empire uh, with a a strong welfare state. So it took a thousand years for Rome to rise and then fall. America seems to be on a path uh, of rise and fall that's that's much more compressed in time. Uh, We are at a point in terms of our uh, debt load and the size of government. One one minute. Rome took hundreds of years to get to. Uh, So uh, that suggests that... uh, we're rather late in this cyclical uh, experience, which raises, in my mind, uh, all the more uh, importance of, uh, uh, of putting an end to it as quickly as we can. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I think that's very true. And I think one of the things that's different uh, in Rome, the machinery of repression was much less powerful than it is now. And so that's a big problem as well. So in ancient Rome, a slave could grab a sword. It wouldn't be wildly dissimilar from a centurion. But now the machinery of control and monitoring and repression is so much greater that you can have smaller groups of people rule larger groups of citizens. I think that's going to make for a different exit. Anyway, listen, I'm sorry we're coming up to the end end of the break. I know you've got uh, somewhere to get to. I really, really do appreciate your time. Uh, This is Lawrence Reed, who is the president of the foundation. For economic education. I think it's fee.org. Highly, highly recommend checking out his website. Uh, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. 
We will be back after the break. It will be more history. Or if you would like to call in, we would really love to hear from you. According to Mind Prophecy, 2012 will be the last Father's Day ever because the world is actually ending in what looks like a fiery zombie alien apocalypse. Uh, heads up! It's 855-472-4433. I don't know when they decided that they wanted to make a virtue out of selfishness. Your money, your stories, your freedom. The Peter Schiff Show. All right, everybody, it's Devan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio standing in for Peter Schiff. Let's take our rocket sled through history from the hot air of ancient history to the tight little bubbly burpy gas of modern day New York soda bands. So, Mayor Bloomberg, I think we've got a cue or two that we can listen to what our good friend Mayor Bloomberg has to say about the government's increasing commitment to fighting obesity. Can we roll a few of these and let's have a chat about those? You announced this on a Thursday. Today is Friday and it's a national holiday. You know yep. what the holiday is? It is National Donut Day. That's right. And your administration, and it's a real thing, not a yep. national holiday, but it is National Donut Day and your administration has come out in support of National Donut Day. Two things. Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. No, it doesn't sound ridiculous. One donut's not going to hurt you. It's in moderation. Anything, or most things are okay. Number two, just think about what National Donut Day is. National Donut Day celebrates a lot of young ladies during World War One called Donut Lassies who went and gave donuts to our soldiers while they were fighting to protect Your democracy. Honor, that if anything in moderation works for donuts, why not with soft drinks? It, it, that's exactly what we're trying to do. That's exactly what we're trying to do with soft drinks, is get you to drink in moderation. So instead of getting the big 32-ounce, get two 16-ounces if you want. But history shows, all the tests show, what you'll do is you'll probably only drink one. Happy National Donut Day. And thank you very much. Wow, isn't that amazing? The government is now telling you what to drink. Well, of course, this is just a, um, a continuation of the government uh, controlling what you eat uh, through farm subsidies and the ridiculous food pyramid and about 1% of spending uh, in the government healthcare regimen is, uh, in terms of food is to promote fruits and vegetables. The rest is to serve the farmers' interests who are hanging off the teats of the state. Now, of course, obesity is, is a big and growing problem, particularly in the United States. But as usual, as always, of course, nobody is ever talking about root causes. Why? Why are people getting fatter? Is it because more food is available? Well, that's not the case, because uh, Europeans aren't getting fatter, even though they have access to the same crap <laughs> that we do. So what is, uh, what is happening? Well... I mean, there's lots of complex reasons, and uh, I, uh, I welcome, of course, your, your calls on this. Uh, this is a very, very interesting topic to me. Uh, I find it absolutely fascinating, so please feel free uh, to call in and complain or praise or differ uh, from me at 855-472-4433. But here is my argument in a nutshell. I'm not claiming it's, it's decisive, but I'm telling you that the statistics and the science seem to point very strongly in this direction. Huge change in society. I lived through this in the 70s. Uh, you know, my parents got divorced. Most people's parents got divorced. A huge, massive, fundamental, unprecedented change in American society, which was uh, really, which really is the destruction of what used to be called the traditional family. So in 1965, 93% of all American births were to women with marriage licenses. Almost all children were born into a marriage. Uh, over the next few decades, this just changed enormously. In 1970, 11% uh, of births were to unmarried mothers. By 1990, that number had risen to 28%. Today, 41% of all births are to unmarried women, and for mothers under 30, the rate is 53%. 53%. 
there is a strong, very strong, I would argue conclusive correlation between coming from a single parent household and being overweight for reasons that are only not obvious to people who are indoctrinated. <laughs> you know, the, the 20th century, and I still sort of count them in the tail end of this horrible, horrible uh, experiment, has been the eclipsing of common sense with massive ideology. And that is something that really, you know, communism, what is, oh, we, we have private property. Well, that's really strange. We have a family. Well, that's really strange. Let's have ideology eclipse and destroy the concept of private property and the nuclear family, which was really the goal of communism. And we have suspicion of higher authority. No, 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 let's have higher authority to do everything for us. Tell us where to go to school, uh, what licenses we need to work, whether we can work, uh, how we're going to help other people, what kind of medicines we, we should take. Uh, it, the list goes on and on. And medical experimentation is not even close to the end in terms of its intergenerational impact. So now we've had this thing which says, okay, well, we don't need the traditional situation where a dad goes out to work and provides and the mom stays home and raises the kids. It can switch, but, you know, that's the traditional arrangement. I myself am a stay-at-home dad, so I uh, hope I'll get a few anti-sexism points from that. But we've had this experiment. We say, okay, let's take the dad out of the equation and substitute state power, the blood money of violently transferred income. Let's see how that goes. Well, it's going terribly. And childhood obesity, which is, of course results in adult obesity so often, is just one of the many symptoms that goes on with this. And so this is the tragic thing that, that we, we were talking about the welfare state in um, post-medieval England. We were talking about the welfare state in ancient Rome. And now we're talking about the welfare state in modern America. The welfare state has fundamentally reshaped the family. As uh, Thomas Sowell has said, uh, a, a, um, a very famous economist has said, the welfare state has done what even slavery couldn't do to minority populations, which is destroy their family structure. I think in uh, African-American households, uh, over 70% of births are to non-married women. And we've substituted the state for the dad. And what does that mean? Well, it means more, more kids in poverty. And people in poverty tend to eat worse. It means that a parent's time is not split with another parent's time with regards to the children. They have much less time for child, much less time to prepare foods, much less time to, to um, go shopping for good groceries, and children left unattended much more often. And particularly in poor neighborhoods, the surrounding neighborhood gets more dangerous and more scary. And so the parents are like, stay home and play with your wee. Oh, and here's a bag of chips because I have to go back to work. And the correlation between this, the correlation between mental health issues, a child from a single parent household is almost 400% more likely to require the services of a mental health professional. Uh, I've actually done a uh, show on this recently. You can check it out uh, at freedomainradio.com if you like. But this is just an example of the kinds of catastrophes that are brought about, rise in obesity as a result of massive social engineering, the displacement of, of the father by the welfare state and social programs and uh, public school education, the um, substitution of um, government power for intimate fatherhood, and the result of this, of course, is catastrophic. And what is the solution that is put forward by the government? What is the solution that is put forward by the government? Have two pops instead of one. Well, I would argue that the pop then really in question is the traditional use of the word pop as in father and not the bubbly soft drinks that are there. And, of course, it won't work anyway. I mean, it's all complete nonsense. None of this stuff's going to work. People will just... Uh, if, if people want 32 ounces, they'll just have 16 ounces and the government, uh, sorry, the the, uh, the vendors will say, hey, free refills. They'll charge a little bit more and you get free refills. And then people will drink probably even more. But the idea that you can solve something like obesity, which is caused through, in large part, through social engineering, uh, is just wretched. I mean, people, they say, well, kids should be more active, but then you have to be forced to sit in these little 
dumb sardine rows of dusty, dull incomprehension in government schools watching some squeaky, antiquated government worker uh, make horrible noises on a blackboard <laughs> with a piece of chalk. Oh, I think they've gone to whiteboards now because that's what you call progress in a state of society. We've got to make these kids sit for, you know, four to six hours a day. Uh, got rid of P.E. time. Uh, and uh, what did they did? They classified pizza as a vegetable because it has tomato sauce. Because they said, we need to get more vegetables into our kids. Because, of course, that's the job of the parents. But now it's become the job of the state. And you get ridiculous situations where they've classified pizza as a vegetable in order to fulfill the mandate. None of this stuff is going to work. The root causes of social problems go back to government programs from decades ago. Trying to whack little symptom-solving band-aids on, the, on the, the back end now is just worse than ridiculous. And just another proof that increased government intervention will always lead to increased government intervention until it collapses or we stand up and stop it. So looking forward to your calls. This is Stefan Molyneux for the Peter Schiff Radio Show. We'll be back right after the break. You've heard of Karl Marx, right? Well, now... Meet his worst nightmare. This is the Peter Schiff Show. All right, it's Stefan Molyneux. Karl Marx's worst nightmare was actually a man named Gillette. Did you see the Old Testament beard on that fella? Dude. Doesn't your wife like to be kissed? Who knows? Anyway, uh, interesting fact about Karl Marx, not many people know. Do you know that he complained about capitalist exploitation of the working class, but he banged his maid, uh, made her big with childs, and then abandoned her? Because, uh, you know, that's a way to not exploit the working class who's actually working for you. Just something to mention that you can judge a moralist by his own actions, at least to some degree. So for those callers who managed to uh, stay awake through the history lesson <laughs> of the first hour, I really appreciate your time. I think we have Greg from Charlotte, North Carolina. You had a question on regulations versus safety? Yeah, I did. I just had a uh, question when regulation actually meets safety and where do you draw the line with government intervention. And I wanted to kind of give you an example in my line of work. That was all right. Yeah, please do. Yeah, uh, I'm an airline pilot, and normally uh, for the longest time they had regulations where, you know, a pilot could get hired on at 250 hours, but, you know, then we had about two crashes, uh, one in 2006, uh, one in 2009, and they decided to change the regulations to make it uh, that you need 1,500 hours to get hired. And, uh, you know, I'm usually with Peter, and I say, you know, regulations, and I admit that it will hurt the, uh, you know, the business of the airlines, but, you know, at, at some point I think safety sometimes uh, comes in priority. Yeah, look, I agree with that. And this is something where there is a rational calculus in the world. I'm, you know, we all say human life is sacrosanct, but this is not true. Um, frankly, it's not true. Because if we reduce the speed limit to 10 kilometers an hour, 30,000 plus people wouldn't die every year on the roads. Uh, but, but, you know, everything else would be thrown into complete chaos and maybe people wouldn't get enough food because it would take forever to deliver it and so on. So there is a rational calculus that goes on. I don't believe that the government, in conjunction with heavily subsidized and protected unions, can do it. Uh, I have a different approach to regulation. I will spin it your way and you can tell me if, uh, if it's a swing and a miss or whether I've connected with something. My solution to regulation is to get rid of the legal shield called the corporation. So if you run an airline and you make unsafe decisions, you make bad decisions, then uh, you should be personally liable for those, right? So if an airline goes down with 100 people or 200 people, an, air, uh, an, airli an airliner, then uh, you should um, you lose your house and go to jail and all of these kinds of things. Assuming that there was negligence, right? That it wasn't just crap happens, to put it as nicely as possible. But uh, unfortunately, what's happened is the, um, uh, the, uh, the people who make bad decisions 
uh, at the top are shielded from uh, any exposure from their personal assets because they have uh, uh, insurance through the corporation. And so because there's no personal liability, then we can expect in an increase of irresponsibility. Uh, you know, the only control mechanism for irresponsibility is consequences. You know, if I don't go to work, I don't get a paycheck. And if you dilute that with things like the welfare state, uh, if you pass kids, uh, even if they aren't doing well, then you, know, you maybe get a short-term benefit, but it's a long-term expense. And corporations as a whole are not at all a free market phenomenon. They are created, invented, controlled, maintained, and protected by the state, largely to the benefit of the economic masters who really like corporations because they can pull all the money they want out of a corporation, but then when the corporation loses money or has liabilities, they're not personally hit for anything. So I think if you got rid of that legal shield, then people would have a very, very strong incentive to make sure that things were as safe as possible. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, no, that, that does make a lot of sense. It's just, uh, you know, when, when things were getting uh, tough and there's starting to be a shortage on pilots, you know, they, they, would, they like to hire, uh, you know, with as much experience as they can. But when it came down to either the plane flying or experience, they're going to make the plane flying. And, uh, but that, that did make uh, quite a bit of sense how you uh, put it. Sorry, there's one other thing that I would mention as well, uh, is that, I can't imagine, like if I'm one, I don't know how much, a couple of hundred people uh, that an airplane will hold. I can't imagine that, let's say you double the pilot's salary. You, you want some much more experienced guy. So you double his salary. I can't imagine that per person that's going to add up to a whole lot, you know, a couple of bucks a head per flight. Yeah, it's one flight, a couple of hours, right? So I'm, I, I would be really happy to pay an extra 10 bucks or 20 bucks to have a really super experienced pilot. Uh, who who knows you know who can do what that nutty guy did and, and land the plane on the on the Hudson River I think he did if, if things go bad yeah. I'd be really happy to pay a little extra for that right. and so if the government really wants to keep airliners safe what they want to do is eliminate taxes on air uh, airplane tickets which run into the hundreds of dollars at least here from Canada uh, get rid of airport fees because that should be paid for through taxation and that gives uh, both the airliners and the passengers more than enough money to get the best possible pilots. Uh, what, how does that strike you? I mean, you're, you're the expert. You, you know what you're doing. This is just my thought. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that definitely makes sense. They, it's just in that you're exactly right when it is supply and demand when it, uh, when it comes to, um, you know, where pilots want to go. Um, it's just it's gotten real complicated with the days where, um, you know, with the economy ahead, it used to be people would just, you know, pay their dues and then move on and get more experience. But uh, you've had people stuck at lower levels and uh, at real extremely low wages, and, uh, and, you know, and that, that brings in as much uh, inexperience as, you know, as you might imagine. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, as far as I understand it, flying is like 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror. And I want the guy who's had that sheer terror before, the man or woman who's done that, so that they know what to do in that moment. Is that a fair assessment? Right. Oh, yeah. It's, it, you're, you're paid to sit there when something, you know, to act when something goes wrong, pretty much. Right, like the autopilot has turned on me and now is asking me to leave by the pod bay doors. No way, that's how the spaceship, something like that. Anyway, thanks so much for your call. I think we've got enough time to dip into um, Sean, who's got a question on oil and gas prices from Oklahoma City. Are you on, Sean? Yeah, I've actually got two comments. The first comment is this. We all agree that a minimum wage destroys jobs, right? Yes. Okay. With that said, why do we only apply that 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 theory or that, that, that principle to the lower class, and we don't apply it uh, to the upper class. The, the Federal Reserve, by, through artificially low interest rates, through bailouts, provides a minimum wage to Wall Street. 
Okay? <laughs> right. Okay? Right. That is exactly right. And as a result of that minimum wage we are guaranteeing Wall Street, they are costing jobs. But at the same time, we then turn around and we beat up the little guy, call him lazy, call him a welfare bum, call, call him everything else, when the very policies that we say will destroy jobs indeed destroys jobs, okay? Uh, yeah, let me just put a comment in there as well, because not a lot of people understand this, that cartel monopoly licensing is a form of minimum wage for the upper classes. So the license you need to be a lawyer, the license you need to be a doctor, the monopoly control over these uh, professions, just to name two of many, many uh, plumbers, uh, you name it, right? Uh, this is a form of minimum wage because it artificially raises the price of these professions uh, to a, a minimum because it reduces competition uh, and uh, uh, raises the barrier to entry and so on. There's two ways of saying the same things. But sorry, go on with your other comment. Well, we, well I actually forgot my other comment, but while we're at it. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I think that is why nothing. I don't understand why in our politics we exempt that class. Uh, from categorizing them as welfare queens, because they because because the that's the class that runs the media. That's the class that runs the newspapers. That's the class that runs the media. And the media aren't going to talk about the welfare state for the rich, which vastly outstrips, I would guess, in terms of spending the welfare state for the poor. I mean, if you include the military industrial complex in this, uh, which substantially raises the wages of the companies involved, I mean, it's a massive subsidies. Uh, for for the wealthy, uh, so I, I I completely agree with you, but we're not hearing about it because the rich point at the poor, and the poor don't have anyone to point at the rich. Well, the, okay, but why does is the Republican Party do they believe in the welfare for the rich and absolve the welfare for the poor? Is that is that what or the or the Republicans just a bunch of stupid asses uh, that think that the welfare only goes one way? I wouldn't call them stupid because they get in power fairly regularly, and the only thing that I can retain my pride in is to imagine that I'm not actually ruled by idiots. That's the only way I can retain a shred of self-esteem in this situation. No, they're not idiots. The Republican Party knows that a large number of Americans will respond to free market rhetoric, but they also know, and the evidence is very clear from Ronald Reagan, who you know, increased federal spending significantly under his reign. I think it went up by two-thirds to George Bush II, who massively increased spending and cut taxes, uh, that the free market rhetoric that the Republicans put out remains almost ex empirically exclusively rhetoric and rhetoric alone. So I don't think they're dumb. They're just saying what people want to hear with no intention of following through. Or even if they have an intention, they hit the power structure and, and fail. Well, that brings up my, my, my point. Thanks for reminding me. You brought up Ronald Reagan. Uh, everybody credits Ronald Reagan for this massive boom that took place. His, his tax cut. 30 seconds. Tax cuts. But the reality yeah. is, what, wouldn't, we, wouldn't we say that what brought about this massive boom over the last 20, 30 years was the huge savings that resulted by double-digit interest rates? Well, all of a sudden, we take interest rates from 3 to almost 20 to fight inflation as a result. We accumulate a huge, huge reservoir of savings, and at the same time... All right, listen, uh, we gotta, we got to take a break. If you can hang on, it's a great chat. Uh, we will come back after the break. Uh, Sean, if you can hang on tight, that would be fantastic. We now return to the Peter Schiff Show. Call in now, 855-4-SHIFF. That's 855-472-4433. The Peter Schiff Show. All right, we are back with Sean, a caller. And, and Sean, I must share with you something that you don't need to know. I have a three-year-old daughter, so all that's going through my head is the theme song for the kids' show, Sean the Sheep. But because you're calling into this show, I'm guessing you're not in that category. I think you had something else that you wanted to uh, comment on, which we had to cut off for the break. Uh, do you want to go ahead? Yes. Are you there? 
Uh, I am. Okay, yes. The, the, the comment being this, uh, uh, you know, we, we credit tax cuts uh, for this, you know, the Reagan tax for this great boom, and certainly that was a part of it, you know. But really, I would say the biggest thing that's contributed to the boom and the reason why tax cuts won't work to, to uh, propel us to this, Reagan couldn't do today what happened in the early 80s simply because what, what the tailwind that Reagan had hit his back was the massive reservoir savings that we accumulated as a result of the double-digit interest rates. Okay, so let me just make sure I understand. So you're saying that, of course, under Carter, we had what the Keynesians said could never happen, which was stagflation, right? High, uh, high inflation and high unemployment. Right. And uh, so because of that, people squirreled their money away. And that created a massive reservoir of savings, which then were looking for a place once the liberalization of the economy happened a little bit after Carter. They found it was like a, a pent-up demand for capital investment, which then resulted in a boom. Is that, is that your general approach? Well, yes. Obviously, yes, absolutely. A pent-up uh, savings that was ultimately put into a forced liquidation mode uh, by the Federal Reserve that then started taking interest rates down ultimately to zero. That's what that's what this boom was about. Was taking to going to massive savings to then almost a negative savings rate. Uh, yeah. Look, I mean, all booms. And this is sort of my argument, and um, you know, I'm an amateur economist at best, so take it with all the grains of salt that you want. But in my opinion, all booms that are not directly related to a shrinking of coercive interference in the marketplace, government power, regulations, control, taxations, tariffs, you name it. All booms that do not result from a minimization, control, shrinkage of government power are artificial and will crash. Right. And, and so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, if, if there's pent-up savings because of bad economic policies and then they then come pouring out, but the government continues to grow, then there will be a crash. And people think that the boom and bust cycle is somehow inherent to capitalism, but I'm very much with the Austrians on this and that I love Lederhosen. Who doesn't? But I also like their argument that... Uh, it is the expansion and contraction of the money supply that causes the busts uh, and the booms and the busts and the booms. And they, I think the only economic school to explain why it happens in the capital sector first and only then in the consumer sector uh, and why it uh, then hits the capital sector first and only then the consumer sector later. So uh, I'm a big fan of that school of thinking. So whenever there's a boom and there's no shrinking in the size and power of the state, in fact, quite the opposite, there's a, a perpetual expansion in the size and power of the state Look for the bust because it is artificial. It is based on credit. It is based on uh, an inflated money supply. Yeah. Uh, it is based upon borrowing. I mean, a lot of the boom that happened, uh, I mean, the economy was pretty stagnant in the 50s because you had like a 90% tax rate uh, for the top tier of individuals and uh, huge taxes on corporations that liberalized in the 60s, but the government grew. And so a lot of the wealth that the baby boomers have got uh, is uh, is based upon the fact that they just didn't have to pay for a whole bunch of stuff that normally they'd have to pay for because the government paid for it, like, you know, roads, like uh, charity for the poor, like uh, uh, all of the public work spending and, and so on. And even the military was largely paid for through, through deficit financing, right. but it generated economic activity. So you've got huge growth in economic activity, but if it coincides with debt, all artificial. And of course, we're still trembling over the precipice. They keep pumping more steroids into this dying muscle, and all it's doing is twitching now. Well, let me ask you this. The, the Republicans say we need to go back to Reaganism. We need, we need to create the environment that uh, Reagan created uh, to bring about another boom. I agree. Are they then willing to take interest rates to double digits to, uh, to create that environment? In other words, let's take interest rates to double digits. 
<laughs> look, you you and I no look. Sorry, interruption. You and I both know that there is no conceivable way the government can take interest rates to double digits. Well, then it's because, a lie. Because that's gonna that's gonna just crush them on interest payments on the debt. Right. Right. There's no that the interest rates are at zero. Not because they care about growing economic activity. All that interest rates at zero means is that banks can make easy money by borrowing interest at near zero and then buying bonds for a couple of points. Um, but uh, it doesn't have anything to do with. E- I mean, they're they're absolutely terrified uh, that any rise in interest rates is going to swallow up the budget and interest payments on the debt. So that's why they have to keep them crushingly low. Just, I mean, I just don't think there's any conceivable way that they can uh, raise interest rates at the moment. What will they do then if uh, inflation then goes to double digits? Well, they will collapse social spending and they will collapse military spending. Uh, I mean, the, the, the politicians, they, you know, they don't want to lose power. Now, right now, they stay in power by lying to people about their intentions, right? I'm going to cut this. I'm going to cut that. You know, we've got Arnold Schwarzenegger taking his Conan the Barbarian sword to budget meetings in California and leaves the state economically crippled. I mean, Reagan himself said, I mean, Reagan himself is a really challenging and complex figure. I want to touch it. It's a really, really big topic. But, um, you know, one thing I absolutely loved Reagan for was his uncompromising moral stance against communism. I mean, that had really been missing and lacking uh, for a long time. And people have been scared about taking a strong stance against communism ever since the McCarthy hearings, when he correctly pointed out that there were myriad Soviet spies in the State Department and then got pilloried by the media for, well, pretty much 40 or 50 years and will still continue. Uh, and Coulter's efforts to the contrary, notwithstanding. And, but he had a fantastic moral clarity about the evils of communism, which is one of the things that I actually quite admire about people who are from the religious side of things, is that they have a lot of moral clarity about evil. People from the secular side of things are way too, you know, well, uh, it's just a different system, and, you know, they have their historical precedents too. And, but he took an uncompromising moral stand against it, which was great, but he was unable to tame the domestic spending beast. Uh, even if he wanted to, uh, he was unable to tame it. So when the interest rates begin to rise and they can't pay off the debt, uh, they will simply collapse social spending. Uh, and uh, this is going to be unbelievably brutal for the poor. And naturally, it's going to get blamed on those of us who have been advocating free market policies low these many decades. I'm sorry, I, I kept talking over your interruptions, but please interrupt away. Oh, did I put you to sleep? No, I'm here. <laughs> Okay, listen, I'm so sorry. We've got another caller in. Uh, I want to make sure that we uh, split up the uh, radio time evenly. Uh, but thanks, Sean. And please feel free to call back any other time that I'm on the show. It was really, really in- a very enjoyable chat. We have Adam from Rochester, Rochester, New York, who is either calling from the post office or wants to talk about the post office or is currently in a box being mailed by the post office. Would you like to pick one of those three, Adam? I'm calling from Rochester. I wanted to talk about uh, the technicalities of privatizing the post office or public schools, things like that. I heard your bit on... Right. Um, I think it was in a bit you did on Ron Paul about, you know, uh, how trying to privatize those institutions would end up with the workers chaining themselves to buildings or just, uh, you know, revolting in those types of ways. But what's the, uh, I don't see, I guess, why it would be such a problem. I mean, assuming, I mean, there'd be major steps along the way, but to auction off the post office to, you know, the highest bidder out of the private sector, because then wouldn't it be in that, you know, the highest bidder's interest to satisfy the union, even as expensive as it would be, what would be the problem with a politician who, an honest politician, Ron Paul or anybody else, um, being able to set that up and, you know, maybe the government won't get that much money for it because... Well, sorry, let me, let me interrupt. Let's sort of roll through this scenario, I think. So you're sort of saying, 
you know, somebody's going to bid for the post office and so on. And now the post office is losing catastrophic amounts of money. Uh, I mean, it's mind-bendingly catastrophic amounts of money. And uh, a lot of this has to do with, um, with the union, right? And look, I always get flack about unions. I have no problem with unions. I think getting together, my wife and I have a perfect union, right? I mean, I have no problem with unions. I don't like the fact where, you know, political force, power control, uh, exclusivity, strike busting and so on, uh, like, like beating up uh, scabs and so on. This is, this is not good. And forced union dues are a violation of freedom of association, blah, blah, blah. But why would somebody want to bid on taking over the post office unless they could radically reform the contracts with the workers? Like you, you wouldn't because all you, then you'd be doing is taking on a massive liability. Like there's nobody who's going to bid money for an organization that's losing billions of dollars a year unless they can change the inputs and outputs, economically speaking, of that organization. Does that make sense? Yeah, but uh, what if they're able to just sell the assets and just let the liabilities crash into the endless debt of the government as it is? Oh, you mean so? What if they simply privatize all of the um, the assets of the post yeah. office and sell those off, and then keep the union contracts run by the government? Well, yeah, I guess the union contracts is the technicality. Is that the barrier? It's. I think it's more than a technicality. I think it's the whole deal. I mean, it's the union contracts. I mean, that that make it so crazy. I mean, it's kind of crazy in a way to have one price to mail everyone, everything, everywhere. And of course, mail is becoming progressively less important. Uh, and mail is mostly spam anyway. Right? Mail is mostly just junk mail, which nobody signs up for, and you can't ever get out of. You can have a do not call registry, but you cannot have a do not spam me with with junk mail registry because that would end the post office completely. Um, I think I can't remember what percentage. It's a massive percentage of it, it's all this unsolicited spam, which is heavily subsidized for local businesses and even non-local businesses. So the question is, what are you going to do with the union contracts? If you turn them back to the government, well, that doesn't do any good. I mean, you got I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people. They have jobs. You turn the contracts over to the government. What are they going to do? Is the government going to keep paying them the salary for not doing the work? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and so what are you going to do? Are you going to try and reduce the wages or are you going to try and reduce the benefits? Well, what's going to happen then? Well, people, you know, I mean, first of all, 40% of the people who work at the post office are ex-military. I'm not sure that you really want to put a lot of <laughs> lighted uh, um, bamboo stalks under their fingernails. Uh, going postal is a pretty strong, <laughs> strong term, which has a lot of historical legitimacy. But they're going to go nuts. They are going to... 30. Um, you're going to chain themselves to the post office. They're going to drive at one mile an hour in their postal trucks through all the major arteries, you know, killing all the traffic and destroying the economy. They're going to riot. I mean, Quebec students are rioting over about $175 a year extra in tuition fees. They're rioting, rioting over that. Uh, look at what's happening in Wisconsin. We'll talk about more of this after the break. Uh, it's a really, really great question, Adam. Stay on the line if you want. Uh, let's uh, talk this through. But... Um, Unwinding this stuff is not going to be very easy. We'll be back in a few. If knowledge is power, then the Peter Schiff Show is a uranium-enriched 10,000-megawatt nuclear reactor. Stay plugged in. Stay brilliant. This is the Peter Schiff Show. All right. This is 10,000 megawatts from Canada, which means 10,000 megawatts with an igloo, an A, and free crappy healthcare. So we're talking with um, Adam from Rochester about the post office. And let me just give a real brief spiel that I'll get your feedback on it. Talking about privatizing the post office, what would be required? Well, you have to collapse the cost of the post office for any private investor to want to take it over. I mean, there's, there's still a place for mail. You know, people got to get stuff delivered from their online stores and so on. So there's still a place for physical mail, of course. 
but you have to collapse the costs. And people will go to the wall. I mean, look, you know, picture it from a, the, the standpoint of a post office worker. I mean, he's endured a crappy, neurotic, <laughs> horrible, dysfunctional work environment where he's mostly been surrounded by the Wayne Knight character from Seinfeld for most of his life. But he's been hanging on there like grim death because of free health care and a big retirement bonus uh, and, and guaranteed this, that and the other until he shuffles off his mortal coil. And these has been the, the foundations for his major life's decisions. And he's put up with a lot and he now expects to get what is due. And if he doesn't get what he's due, uh, then uh, he's going to go hog wild and he's going to have a union that's going to go hog wild as well, right? You, you start to mess with the union, you start to mess with the income of some seriously dangerous people who quite often seem to have ties with some rather shadowy underlords of the crime world. And so it's a pretty dangerous thing to mess with. I think people who want to take a political solution should at least be consciously aware of the fact that it seems that it's almost impossible to be able to make these changes without having to deploy force. These people are going to go on strike, they're going to clog the streets, they're going to chain themselves to things, they're going to make uh, peaceful protest lines, marches, uh, they're going to, you know, kick, uh, kick the crap out of scabs. And you're going to have to bring in the riot police and you're going to have to use your water cannons and you're going to have to break this stuff up and uh, restore the free, uh, free flow of traffic and so on. And what's going to happen then? Remember, we're surrounded by a hysterically propagandized mob of <laughs> narcissistically entitled... <laughs> dependence. So what's going to happen is, you know, some libertarian, whoever gets in, in power and uh, begins to mess with uh, government contracts, uh, and these government contracts, of course, will be taken to court. There'll be recall elections, just as Scott Walker is suffering through in Wisconsin for the mere act of attempting to get these people to pay a tiny little bit more for their own entitlements and to say, we're not going to negotiate things 20 years from now because those voters aren't around at the moment. And look what's happening to him. And so there's going to be massive resistance on the part of the government workers and as a result you're going to have to bring in the troops and then what's going to happen is the media is going to say look what happens when we get a libertarian president look what happens there's blood in the streets and there's going to be some picture of you know some teacher or some government worker who's um, you know fallen down and is bleeding and ah this is what libertarianism does remember how nice things were before the libertarians came in and now there's blood in the streets and this will sully and catastrophize the name of libertarianism for a pretty indefinite period of time in the future. So I just want to get your thoughts on that if you're still on the line. I haven't put you to sleep completely, but, but what do you think? Yeah, no, I'm still here. So our conclusion is that the union's requirements are so high that a private company, I mean, UPS, FedEx or something, even if we gave them the assets of the post office, they wouldn't be able to make it um, economical to make a deal, a feasible deal that the union would agree to that um, they would allow the privatization and continue to work with all their ridiculous requests, but that, you know, the private company wouldn't be able to raise postage prices or something to uh, offset those costs and maybe dwindle it down over time, or, I mean, they wouldn't, I don't know, there's, there's no way to do that. Well, of course, raise, look, I mean, raising postal rates um, is just going to diminish service. So to raise postal rates, you would have to get rid of junk mail. Junk mail is ridiculously subsidized. So any private company subsidized by the state, right? Any company that took that over would have to raise the price of junk mail. I think that'd be a great thing because I'm a rabid environmentalist and I think junk mail is terrible. So it should, ha it should have the full market cost for its delivery. And uh, so they, 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 that would toast junk mail for the most part, uh, which would toast 80 to 90% of what the mail carries. And so what would happen then? Well, you've got, you could raise your postal rates, you'd have to raise them like five or ten times or more just to cover the losses from the end of the, um, the junk mail, 
And, you know, how many people then are going to want to spend more for crappy postal service uh, rather than spend less for really great FedEx and UPS service? Like it just, it, again, I'm no expert in this. This is just my, you know, amateur idiot economic mind churning way. I just can't see how raising rates is going to do anything other than cripple your investment. Okay. Yeah, right. well, I'm sorry if I've crushed your hopes about privatizing the post office. Maybe there's a way to do it. You know, if other callers, I'll be back tomorrow for those who are interested. If you've got better ideas of how to do it, uh, this is just, I've seen this kind of stuff uh, right up close. Uh, how entitled, how enraged, how frustrated, how manic, uh, how crazy uh, these people get. And of course, uh, remember, the majority of people in the media are part of a union or depend on people who are unionized. This is why you don't see a lot of anti-union films, right? I mean, because the media, the movie industry is run by unions, controlled by unions. You, just, you don't see a lot of that stuff going on. And so given that the media is controlled by unions, how is the media going to deal with any kind of union busting? Well, they're going to portray it in a way that is pretty catastrophic for anyone who's attempting to bust the unions. And people make the decisions based on the media. I mean, who, who has access to philosophical first principles anymore? You... Me and all of the other listeners to my show and Peter's show. But very few of us have access to first principles and say, well, it's the initiation of force that's wrong. It's violations of property rights that are wrong. And all of the rest of the media garbage, the light and dog and pony show of nonsense, the kaleidoscopic echoes of nothing controlled, empty status nonsense doesn't mean a damn thing. What matters is first principles. So few people have access to those first principles that they're simply going to rely on the emotional manipulations of the media and the, um, you know, the money shot of subjugation of whoever happens to be hit by a rock in one of these riots, which then, then can get blamed on free market libertarian philosophy forever. I mean, good heavens, people are still blaming. <laughs> people are still blaming the Great Depression of the late 20s and all the way through the 30s and into the 40s, like the 13 or 14 years of grinding economic destruction. They're still blaming that on the free market. They're still blaming that on the free market. So I say stay away. Let the people who made the mess uh, have to clean it up. Uh, stay away from the corridors of power at the moment. That would be my suggestion. Uh, because um, if we grab the helm after the, the Titanic has hit the iceberg, all we will be remembered as is the people who were in charge when the ship went down. <laughs> so uh, that's my strong suggestion. Politics is great for education. Uh, politics is great for bringing people uh, out of the matrix uh, slowly, but it is not great for actually achieving our goals at the moment. We need a smarter, more enlightened, and better educated population before I think we can start to make these changes. Uh, that's my argument. Uh, I certainly don't claim to have any kind of monopoly on how things should go in the future, but that's what reason and evidence has led me to, to accept. So, um, thank you so much uh, for the callers. I really, really appreciate that. That means I didn't have to bleed into my show material for tomorrow. I will actually be back tomorrow, um, I think after the market excitement from last week. Uh, Peter is now, he's been uh, uh, helicoptered away and then teleported to an undisclosed, undisclosed location. But uh, he will be back on Wednesday, but I will be back tomorrow morning uh, at 10 o'clock sharp. With some gripping different kind of stuff. I know Peter's a, a big expert on the uh, investments and the economics. Uh, I thrash around a little bit in that area. My specialty is a little bit more on the history and philosophy side. But I will be back uh, tomorrow morning and we will have some very interesting conversations about the, uh, the lack of responsibility that the 1% currently has and how little that has to do with the free market. I know, I keep beating that same drum. But until the world hears the drum, we've just got to keep beating that drum. It is never freedom that fails it is always and forever force that fails all catastrophes have a gun 
in the center. We will be back tomorrow morning. Thank you, everybody, so much. Thanks to Peter and to the crew for enabling this great broadcast. Stephbot is out. <laughs>